I'm Tom Reaney, host of the Jazz Beat Podcast and of Jazz on the Mode at New England Public Media. And my guest today is Peter Goralnik. Peter is the author of the definitive two-volume biography of Elvis Presley, Last Train to Memphis, and Careless Love, and biographies of Sam Cooke, Dream Boogie, and Sam Phillips, the man who invented rock and roll. Goralnik is also the author of Sweet Soul Music, Searching for Robert Johnson, and two volumes of essays and profiles, Feel Like Going Home and Lost Highway. Actually, Peter is the author of now a third anthology of essays and profiles, which is the um, prime purpose of our um, meeting today. And that uh, a new book is entitled Looking to Get Lost, Adventures in Music and Writing. Peter, uh, it's wonderful to uh, speak with you today. Congratulations, of course, on, on this beautiful uh, collection of, of essays and uh, profiles and interviews, and it's been nice to see you getting attention from a lot of other uh, quarters since the publication of the book, and really nice to have you today for, for Jazz Beat. Well, thanks, Tom. It's good to see you again. You know, however remote, however virtual, it's great to see you again. Likewise. Thanks, Peter. Um, as I understand it, you met, and in some cases got to know, uh, everyone in this book except one, and that's Robert Johnson. Why is the chapter on Johnson in the book, and why is he so prominent in your experience? Well, I mean, he's prominent in my experience because hearing that, uh, that first Robert Johnson album in 1961 when I was a freshman at Columbia and just it came so unexpectedly was just a complete uh, turning point, in a sense, in my life. It was so extraordinary. It was such an extraordinary experience. Let me cut in right away and ask, what was it that prompted you in that day to buy that album? Well, I was totally into the blues. I mean, when I was 15 or 16, I just fell into the blues. Uh, A friend of mine and I uh, discovered it through a series of uh, accidental encounters, and then we just became totally uh, immersed and obsessed. And so by the time the Robert Johnson came out in 61, uh, I had been listening to blues, to whatever was available, whatever I could find, Lightning Hopkins, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Brownie McGee and Sonny Terry, Josh White, Lead Belly. I mean, it was pretty much, there wasn't a lot available. And I maybe I'd heard one one cut by Robert Johnson at that point, which had been uh, uh, put on an anthology that Sam Charters put out. But uh, I just wasn't prepared for the uh, breadth, for the... Uh, I don't want to say virtuosity, for the intensity of the experience. And I went and walked into Sam Goody's, which was, I don't know, 49th or 50th Street in New York. And um, and there it was, in the blues bin. Uh, there was Robert Johnson and there was Big Joe Williams' Piney Woods Blues. And I got both of them and took them back to my dorm room and I listened over and over and over and over. Uh, but the reason for that I wanted to include it in the, uh, in, in a sense, the... Uh, the book, uh, this collection, is framed by several, not theoreticals, but by contextualizing chapters. And it ends with chapters about my father and his father and my other grandfather, Philip Marson, who, who was such an inspiration to me in terms of wanting to write and reading and everything. But they were all inspirations to me. And it begins with my own experiences. But the Robert Johnson, in a certain sense, for me, sets a marker about how are we to come to this music? How are we to come to art in general? And I felt like I wanted to say it just doesn't matter that we came to Robert Johnson. There's no cause for self-congratulation that we discovered this music. When all these great blues singers were rediscovered in the 60s, like Mississippi John Hurt and Skip James and people like Joe Calicott and Sleepy John Estes, 
that was great, but I mean, their music existed with, with or without this audience rediscovering them. And what I wanted to stress, and it was a theme that runs through the book without ever being articulated, is that it's the music, it's the art, it's the books that are important. People can go in, writers can go in and out of fashion. Somebody like Henry Green, whom I write about in this, and who was the first person I ever interviewed, just just before I interviewed Skip James, uh, when I was um, 19 years old, I think. He, he has been in and out of fashion over and over again, and sometimes he's been totally forgotten, as John Donne was forgotten for 300 years, as Robert Johnson was forgotten for 50 years. But it doesn't matter. The work exists, the work is the work uh, can, pers- persists, and it's up to us to, you know, to find the reasons to appreciate it, but not, it, it makes not the slightest difference on the impact of the work. In other words, Johnson matters because of who he was in his time and how he continues to speak to listeners today, but less so, and this often frustrates me, to hear how much he influenced rock and roll. Well, I think he, it's very important uh, it matters a great deal that he influenced Muddy Waters and Robert Jr. Lockwood and Elmore James and Sonny Boy Williamson because the music came down to us through that. Nor do I think the music is set in its time any more than I think Moby Dick is set in its time. I mean, these are all sorts of, or Henry Green's work or John Donne's. I mean, in other words, the greatest art is timeless and it exists to be appreciated and discovered in different ways and in different contexts. Uh, in uh, by later generations, uh, but it isn't in any way, uh, uh, you know, set in its time, and that's what is so remarkable about Robert Johnson's blues, is that he conceived of the of this music, in such precise and uh, and just uh, emotionally um, uh, expansive ways, that it continues to have resonance, it continues to have meaning, and it continues to have ever growing significance. Now, in describing the experience you had of listening to the Johnson album, King of the Delta Blues Singers, you say that amidst its mysteriousness, you felt the unmistakable familiarity of its emotional terrain. Where Mm -hmm. do you think that familiarity was grounded in you? Well, yeah, it must have been. (laughs) I mean, this is the thing. You can't really assign a reason. Why should the blues be, uh, you know, have made such an impact or be of such significance in Japan, say? or in, in other countries, other places, which don't even speak the language. And I can't really begin to um, assess that. But it seems to me, you know, it seemed to me, it, it just, when, when I first heard the blues, it, not just Robert Johnson, but, but discovering the blues, uh, this, this friend of mine, his brother went down to the Newport Folk Festival, came back with some records, and out of those records, and a lot of them continued to mean something, Woody Guthrie, Cisco Houston, uh, Jimmy Rogers. I mean, it wasn't uh, bluegrass. All of those things made some impact, but it was the blues that just spoke to me directly. And why that was, uh, I can't really say. But one of the things about Robert Johnson that is that he wrote songs, he, he composed blues that had a consistent, not just message, but that, that had an overall and overarching intent, uh, like a poem. Like uh, I mean, I wrote it as, a, I think, a senior in college, I wrote a paper called Catullus and the Blues, and it was linking uh, Catullus with Sonny Boy Williamson, let's say. And, and I'm sure that the, well, I know, I know that the um, classics professor who read it found it inordinately pretentious, and I bet that all half the blues, <laughs> the blues fans, if they were to read it, they would find the same thing. 
But to me, the, all of these poets, these lyric poets, and Robert Johnson and uh, Sleepy John Estes and all these other uh, artists were seeking an emotional core, which they might express in different ways, but which had a commonality. And one of the things you know that I discovered in writing this new book and writing Looking to Get Lost was, in a sense, this, the democratic impulse that existed among everybody I'd written about. Not something I was spending a lot of time thinking about when I was interviewing Bill Monroe or Jerry Lee Lewis, but but what struck me so forcibly as I wrote new pieces for this and rewrote old ones was how open all of the people I wrote uh, wrote about were to every kind of music. There were no categories. There were no. They weren't breaking it down into. Well, I want this kind of chord. I want this. You have Howlin' Wolf uh, talking about how high the moon and celebrating the success of Elvis Presley. I mean, this is the most you know, the purest of African-American blues singers and pointing to Jimmy Rogers as a formative influence on his music. Jimmy Rogers, the father of country music. And you have it going the opposite way where you have somebody like Bobby Blue Bland who will cite Aretha Franklin's father, C.L. Franklin, the Reverend C.L. Franklin, uh, as the source of his, um, I always lose track, not his gargle, but, you know, the sort of... <laughs> yeah, the squall. The squall, the squall, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I don't know what the source of my squall is today, but Bobby Bland would point to Reverend C.L. Franklin as the source of his squall. Then he would point to somebody like Perry Como for the smoothness of his singing, which he also admired. And then he would cite country and western as an equally significant influence in the way it told a story. So I just, I'm not pointing to the politics of anybody I'm writing about, but I don't think there's a single person I've written about you know, whose reach has not been vast, who hasn't had what Sam um, Phillips called ears all around his head, and who wasn't open to every type of music. It's funny, Peter, uh, the uh, tuba player, Howard Johnson, Mm -hmm. who um, led the Saturday Night Live band, among other things, uh, over the course of his career, died a day or two ago. And I was uh, watching an interview with him earlier this morning, and he talked about discovering an album, Madama Butterfly, at a neighbor's home, and he thought it was a blues singer named Madame Butterfly, <laughs> and he was so excited to bring it home and listen to it. But from there, he leaped into making sort of distinctions between what whites and blacks uh, listen to, what they're attracted to, and he cited Perry Como as kind of the epitome of a whites-only uh, voice and sound. But of course, we do know that Bobby Bland, among others, cited him. Well, I mean, you know, Ray Charles, whom I write about extensively in the new book, when, and I don't have this in the book, but when I asked him what he was listening to nowadays at the time we were met, he said, well, I, I love these Jackie Gleason Presents albums, and which I think maybe might have been sold in supermarkets at the time. I'm not sure. And I started to laugh, and you never want to laugh if you're not sure somebody's telling a joke, you know, it's, it, it, that can, that's a dangerous thing to do. But, but then, I, I, then he, said, he said, I love the sweet sound of Bobby Hackett's trumpet. And I realized he can listen to it with ears that are far less prejudiced than mine. I say, well, what's he talking about? But he actually heard something in that that reached him, that, that inspired him in some way. And it may not have inspired him as much as uh, Archie Brownlee, the lead singer for the Five Blind Boys, who was his model, really, at, when he started finding his own voice. But it, but it definitely reached him, and I, I stifled my laugh then. <laughs>
Many of the musicians you write about and have gotten to know in some cases profess a strong sense of distinction between the sacred and the secular in music. And that's often uh, driven by, uh, by their faith, uh, a faith grounded in Christian fundamentalism. Do you ever feel challenged to respect a musician's, um, you know, let's say, outspoken religious leanings? Not really, no. I mean, I, I might feel challenged if the conversation, you know, veered off into politics. I don't know that. I'm not assigning a political intent to anybody I'm talking about, but I, that, that I might have a difficulty with. But basically, I'm not interested in how I feel. I'm interested in who the person I'm talking to is, who the person I'm talking to is and how they feel. And the whole Pentecostal movement on the black side and on the white side is such a root cause of so much of the music that means so much to me, whether it's Elvis or Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, Sister Rosetta Tharp is a foundation. And no, I, I feel like what I want to do is to present the world of the person I'm writing about and the person, you know, and the individuality of the person I'm writing about without prejudice and without anything that attaches to my own beliefs or my own belief system. So, uh, yeah, I've spent a lot of time in black churches in particular. <laughs> and, I mean, I feel out of place to some extent. To that extent, it maybe it's a challenge, but I don't feel... I mean, the music just reaches me so it's... Again, it's so familiar. It uh, And, uh, you know, somebody like Jerry Lee Lewis, for example, doesn't see any dichotomy. I mean, Sleepy would have liked, and Sleepy didn't see a dichotomy. He had a, a system of belief, and he had music in, to which he uh, assigned and conferred every drop of emotion he had to offer. And I think in some ways, Sleepy kind of would have liked to have ended up being a preacher. And many of the, many of the uh, musicians who played with him uh, did end up doing that, and he was just proud of them, inordinately proud of them. Uh, but he didn't see a contradiction between making this mu this joyful music and uh, the faith that he adhered to so strongly. And Jerry Lee Lewis, too. I mean, he's had a, a belief that he has never left the church and he will come back to it, and I think he has. Peter, you record most of the music you write about the status of art and describe the players themselves as artists. I wonder if you uh, ever feel a conflict in squaring the unique vision or achievement of an artist, especially in the context of the blues, which even in Robert Johnson's case is deeply rooted in tradition. Well, I mean, look how somebody like Hemingway schooled himself on all the writers who went before, whether they were the Russian writers or Sherwood Anderson, who was kind of a mentor to him, or Aldi or Gertrude Stein or Joyce. <clears throat> there are all these writers who go before uh, or somebody like Lee Smith, whom I write about in the uh, new book, how it was Eudora Welty who set her free and set her free to find her own voice and to find her own expression of that voice. Uh, so I think we're all a product of everything that's gone before. Johnny Shines, you know, talked to me, uh, and I'm sure to, to lots of other people, about his belief that we're standing on, you know, and just that whole thing, we're standing on the shoulders of everyone who went before, and if we forget that, we can't find our way to the future. So I, I don't, uh, I, I think the main thing is, uh, was it Dwight MacDonald who wrote a book about Middlebrow, I think, middle Middlebrow culture? But I don't see a distinction between highbrow, middlebrow, or low. I, I feel like everybody's trying to, doing, finding the best way they have to express what's 
you know, most inside them. The thing that's most, one of the things that's most remarkable about Robert Johnson is he took, I mean, if you listen to the music, let's say, of Howlin' Wolf or of Sun House uh, or of Muddy Waters, in many ways, the music is often made up of floating verses, what you're talking about, this shared culture, what Zora Neale Hurston writes about quite a bit and what she considers the reason that, uh, you know, that African-American uh, African Americans in general and African American artists should never look to white culture; they should glory in their own culture, at which exists. Now, the thing about Robert Johnson is he takes those commonalities, uh, he takes uh, the musical commonalities. He's he he will cite, he'll lift a verse from one song or from another, but basically he's composing music and composing a form of expression that's as original in its own way as you know, Beethoven or Mozart or Brahms. A thing like Me and the Devil or uh, Standing at the Crossroads, I Tried to Flag a Ride, Ain't Nobody Seemed to Know, seemed to know Me, Everybody Passed Me By. This is a metaphor which everybody can understand, but that probably stems from his own experience. And it's not unique. Uh, that, maybe that verse is unique to his music, but the point is he builds a song that comes to an emotional climax, whether it's something like Come On in My Kitchen, which is full of all kinds of sexual innuendo, but as, as Johnny Shine said, when he finished that song, when they would play it out on the street for an audience of men and women, he says, everybody there, men and women alike, were crying when he reached the end of that song. And uh, when he does a song like Hellhound on My Trail, which is such an extraordinary song, the imagery of it is something that is so unique to him. And the the build of that song and the way in which not only uh, the music but his vocal expression and the words all join together to form a single effect. This is a very different, you know, form of uh, self-expression or expression. It's, it's the expression of genius. And you run into this occasionally, and you run into all sorts of different forms of expression and forms of genius. And I wouldn't give anything for the emotional impact of Howlin' Wolf's music, but I don't think it has that kind of compactness or that kind of uh, centeredness uh, that Robert Johnson is, but it has something else, and I'll value that just as much, too. Sure. Yeah. You write that art is meant to be shared, but music is a commercial product, and the history of blues is fraught with stories of theft, of copyright infringement, of record labels ripping off musicians. Annie C. Anderson's new book, Brother Robert, which includes a brief conversation with you and Elijah Wald and Mrs. Anderson, is divided between her narrative of growing, growing up in Memphis in a household in which her stepbrother, Robert Johnson, was often present, and the later saga that she and her stepsister, Carrie Thompson, went through as Johnson prospectors came along in the 60s and 70s, seeking a significant piece of the commercial action on the rediscovered Robert Johnson. How do you see the effect of this conflict between art and commerce in the worlds of blues and country music? Well, I think it's stifling in, in all respects. Don't limit it to the world I'm writing about. I think, you know, when you talk about intellectual property, the emphasis is on one word, and that's not intellectual. I mean, the point is, this is the product of capitalism. It's the product of law schools. It's the product of people seeing an opportunity to make money for themselves, who go to school for four years, trained to be lawyers, not to do you know, I mean, many people may want to do good in the world, but many people are really out for themselves. And this whole uh, branch of law, you know, called intellectual property, first emerged in music, 
I would say uh, in the 50s, but in a very mild way. And it's really the last, I don't know, 30 or 40 years where it's become big business. And I don't know how you, you adjudicate it. I don't know how you deal with it. But the point is, it's something, all art is theft. It just, there is, all art is borrowing. There's no such thing as original art. There's nobody who goes out there and is free of the influences of either previous mentors or previous generations. And you can go through uh, the work of, you know, the classics. I mean, I've been, for whatever reason, maybe it's the pandemic, uh, I was reading David Copperfield and um, uh, Great Expectations. And all through that, you see borrowings on Dickens's part, not from, maybe from other authors, but also from his own experience and what might be considered falsifications of that experience by people who are being portrayed. And it, it's, this is what art is. It isn't anything different. I mean, it, it's come up again and again with Bob Dylan, for example. Uh, and in some cases, you know, maybe it's true. Maybe it's, you know, there are borrowings. Uh, but I, you, you probably know the, the, uh, uh, the quote, about, uh, you know, genius borrows and... Uh, a genius steals, mediocrity borrows. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I feel like it's, for the most part, it's something, it has to do with commerce. And the whole basis on which the music industry is set up has to do with ownership and it has to do with publishing. And it was, an, it was a system that was established, in I think, in the 1870s or 1880s in Europe. And it's a system which obtains to this day in which the people who own the music are generally speaking the people who own the publishing and they up until quite recently they've always been they have not generally been the songwriters and that's where the theft takes place but it it, ha it doesn't have to do you know in particular with race although it has a big race can have a big impact but it has hugely to do with class education and the obfuscation that uh, is really endemic to the practice of the law.
Peter, in addition to Robert Johnson, you write of another Delta blues man, Skip James, and you describe the experience of the first interview you conducted with him as one that drew you out of what you called your immediate circle of acquaintance. Skip James is a fairly obscure figure, but I found your chapter on him to be one of your most impassioned pieces of writing. What drew you to Skip James? Oh, just again, I, I, you know, it's the uniqueness of his sound, the oddity of his sound, the you know inner compulsion of his sound, the way in which he's just communicating something so unlike anything that I ever heard before. I mean, he's quite different from Robert Johnson in the sense that Robert Johnson, you can trace as original as he is, and he is highly original. You can trace the sources of his music, and you can trace the things that are conventional within it. In the case of Skip James, he came from a tradition which, as it turned out, it existed within the small hometown circle in which he grew up of Bentonia, Mississippi, but you'd never heard it anywhere else uh, except Bentonia, and nobody else had ever been recorded in that, quite that fashion. So it was, it was just, I had heard the early records. Um, there was a label called Origin Jazz Library uh, run by Pete Whalen and Bill Givens out of Brooklyn, and that put out uh, their first album. It was called Really the Country Blues to indicate that it was going into the blues that people hadn't heard the blues of Charlie Patton, the blues of Ishman Bracey, the blues of Skip James. And so, and then when he was rediscovered, and I saw him sing those first notes at Newport in 1964, just the notes just carrying across the field. I mean, my, uh, you know, my friends and I had, had speculated, well, how did he get that sound? How did, you know, what, what kind of a guitar? Did, he must have had a guitar that had been made by, you know, some kind of a craftsman who made only three guitars in his life and you couldn't get that. There he is playing, I think, a borrowed guitar, you know, maybe it was a Martin, you know, it was like any other guitar and getting the same sound and his voice just sailing and soaring across the field. And that was in 64. Uh, and I, I just felt like, it was the same same impulses with Henry Green, the English writer whom I had interviewed a couple of years before. I mean, I was 20 in 64. And I just, yeah, <clears throat> I've come up with a quote, and I don't know where it comes from now. It's, you, you, maybe you'll know, but it's greatness such as this will not pass my way again. I keep thinking it's a biblical quote, but I don't know what it is. Um, but in any case, that was what crossed my mind. And when he was staying with a guy that I sort of knew who became a very good friend and a friend for life, Dick Waterman, a great photographer. His book, which is called, what is it called? Blues Like Showers of Rain, maybe? Dick Waterman, anyway. Remember Dick Waterman, and, and everybody needs this, this book as a combination of words and images. Uh, but uh, And I sort of knew him. I really didn't know him. and But Skip was staying with him and playing at Club 47, where I went to see him every night. And so I called up and I said, you know, and with my teeth chattering and my heart in my mouth and said, you know, I want to do a story for a magazine called Blues Unlimited, which I had yet to see. I had, been, I had subscribed to it about a year before, but I, they still hadn't sent an issue. And Dick said, hmm, that's, that's strange. They just ran a three-part series on Skip James. <laughs> so I sort of adjusted myself as best I could. I mean, I was just mortified. And uh, ended up doing the story for an, uh, the second English blues magazine, Blues World, by, which was edited by a guy named Bob Groom, whom I became good friends with. But uh, but the point was, I didn't care who it was for. It was for me. 
and that's what I and I went over and to Dick's apartment in uh, in Cambridge um, and uh, uh, between midnight and day I think that's what it's called the book uh, but uh, and I went over and and uh, uh, you know forced myself uh, <laughs> out of the car across the street with many false steps and uh, my teeth chattering and I and I interviewed him and. Um, you know, just, and he was very kind to me. <laughs> he took pity on me. And that became, I, I wrote it up for myself right away, within days, I think. I just found the original uh, draft. And then I got that published in Blue's World uh, a while later. And then I completely rewrote it for Feel Like Going Home. And then this, the chapter in uh, Looking to Get Lost is revisiting the whole the story and looking at it from a somewhat different perspective. Yes, I was impressed to see you taking on Stephen Colt's book on Skip James, I'd Rather Be the Devil. I don't recall anything else in your writing that amounts to such a sharp critique of someone else's work, and I was thrilled to see it. What drove you to address Stephen Colt in that way? Well, it was the same thing that led me to... Uh, I've written very, very few negative pieces in my life, but it was the same thing that led me to take on or to review Albert Goldman's biography of Elvis long before I, you know, uh, wrote the, you know, Last Train to Memphis, uh, and uh, or I had any thought of doing that. But I was just so offended that anybody, forget about whether it's Elvis Presley or Skip James or you or me, should be reduced to their worst elements, should be reduced to their most, and should be treated with this dripping contempt almost. So, but the reason that I wanted to include it and rewrite it somewhat for this new book, for Looking to Get Lost, was because in a way it set forth my own creed <laughs> for, not just for biography, but for writing profiles, which is basically you treat everyone, you know, you're writing about with dignity and respect and with respect for their dignity. I mean, and, and the last chapter, the next to last chapter in the book is learning this lesson from my fa my father and his father, who were both physicians, and the way in which they treated. I mean, again, these are lessons that, and one of the gifts to me of writing this book, was the lessons that became more overt, <laughs> were far from overt, at the time that I experienced them, but became you know I recognized were part of the belief system that I grew up with, and and in writing about my father and my grandfather. I wrote about the respect with which they treated their patients, the, the uh, patients that they showed, different spelling, you know, to, to their patients, the way in which they, the, the center of their concern was not, never their own dignity, but the well-being of the people they were treating and, and not making those people feel small, making those people feel that they were the most important thing. And that's, you know, again, in retrospect, I've come to recognize that uh, Whitney Balliot's profiles in the New Yorker of jazz musicians exerted a, a considerable influence on me because what he did was he found a language. He was writing, let's say, about Charles Mingus or Thelonious Monk or Duke Ellington or uh, you would know better than I. I mean, I remember. But he wrote about them in language that didn't condescend in any way and that didn't forfeit any of his own literary capabilities but didn't didn't focused the, the spotlight on the way he, he it's simply from my point of view and and again you're you have far more expertise and you may have a different perspective but from my point of view it treated uh those musicians with 
you know, with the respect that they deserved, and in a way that didn't differ from the way you would write about high art or the way you would write about high, high culture. It was, uh, you know, it, it, gave, it accorded them a dignity, and at the same time, or at least what I tried to do, and I, I haven't read Whitney Balliot's profile in quite a while, but it all, I, what I tried to do was to find an idiom that was not contemporary, but it, it, to find a voice that was idiomatic, that I was writing about them. So it wasn't so highfalutin and elevated, but at the same time, it didn't forfeit any of the, I keep coming back to respect, but that that you that I would show to, you know, writers that I admired the most. Uh, it, it, it meant that their art was just as significant as any other, and it deserved language that was just as respectful. Well, Whitney Balliot made extensive use of interviews, and some of his profiles read like beautiful, unbroken monologues. But if you read him enough, you begin to recognize that he's editing and stylizing what his subjects have to say about their lives and careers as musicians, and that no one really speaks extemporaneously with such eloquence. Well, you know, I should say, I mean, uh, I remember uh, years and years ago talking with Stanley Booth, who wrote the great, that great book about the Rolling Stones. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, I know his book about Memphis. Yeah, which was a collection of his early pieces. But uh, in the uh, True Adventures of the Rolling Stones, Outlaw Bandit, that was how it was originally called. I, I, uh, but he, uh, he and I would talk about the writing, and we would point to uh, quotes from the people we were writing about as being, you know, in a sense, the pinnacle of anything we could ever write. And we would have, each of us had editors who would occasionally say, look, you've got to cut down on, you know, on the Skip James quote. You've got to cut down, you know, that muddy water. You could tell it just as well. And my point was not that I wanted to have every word of every interview and all of the interviews are, they're never presented, you know, just with all the repetitions and the ers and the ahs and the ums, you know, that that real life includes. But but the point was, is that the voice and the language and the manner in which people express themselves is just so significant in terms of communicating what they're all about. And so Stanley and I would talk about it and just, uh, we didn't shake our heads. We, I think we were much more indignant about it, you know, but <laughs> about this editorial misunderstanding and the failure to recognize the beauty and the eloquence of everyday speech. And it wasn't everyday speech, of this of particular speech. Well, 
But if I ever can get up off of this old heart-killing flow Lord, I'll never get out this low no more so long think of more recent books by writers like Mary Beth Hamilton and Elijah Wald that question the work of earlier writers and folklorists and record collectors who rediscovered country blues artists and came to establish the canon of essential country blues records. I wouldn't equate Elijah with Mary. Is it Mary Jane? Uh, yeah, Mary Beth Hamilton. Mary Beth Hamilton. Uh, you know, I wouldn't equate the two. I mean, I think what Elijah's writing about is that uh, idolization never brings true reward. And uh, he is, you know, simply saying that we, we ought to have uh, language and perception to back up our opinions, that assertion, you know, this is, and, and this I should say in the age of the internet is a radical view, uh, but, um, you know, that assertion is, is, is not truth and that what well, you want to, exp- and so when he puts Robert Johnson in context and describes what his roots are, I don't, I don't think it's with any disrespect for Robert Johnson, or for people who've written about him, although he will find fault with others who have written without, uh, I mean, somebody like Samuel Charters, who was, his book, first book, The Country Blues, was such a huge influence on me and on a whole generation, but it doesn't mean that it stands as literal truth, and he was not, he was writing rhapsodically, and that's the way I take it. But I, I, uh, but with Mary Beth Hamilton and, and other revisionists, I think what they're failing to, uh, uh, you know, take into account is the context of the music, so that it really doesn't make any difference. That's one of the points about my chapter on Robert Johnson. It doesn't make any difference what the record collectors thought about Robert Johnson's, uh, Johnson. It's the impact of the music itself. And it's not record collectors or critics who elevate the music in any way, shape, or form. It is 
the persistence of the music, and the fact that, you know, one of the arguments of, let's say, these revisionist historians is, well, Robert Johnson was never popular in his time. He didn't, you know, why should we be talking about him? Let's talk about Bumblebee Slim, who was the equivalent of a you know, million seller. And I don't know enough about Bumblebee Slim to talk about him here, and I don't think you want, so I'm not going to. But the point about Robert Johnson is his music made a huge, huge, huge impact, as did Charlie Patton's. I mean, Howlin' Wolf was singing the praise and singing the songs of Charlie Patton till the day he died. And if Howlin' Wolf is significant, you know, Charlie Patton is the underpinning. And in the case of Robert Johnson, the generations that followed kept his music alive. They didn't know about white record collectors. They didn't know about, you know, critics of the music. They didn't know about rhapsodists or, you know, elegiac, uh, you know, poets or anything. They kept the music alive because of its impact on them and somebody like Muddy Waters, Wolf himself, uh, Elmore James, Robert Tony Lockwood. The, the music persisted, and if nobody had ever discovered that that music had come from Robert Johnson... It wouldn't invalidate the music in the slightest. It would only go to show... So I, I just feel like people lose sight of, you know, the main the main issue, which is hell out on my trail, me and the devil blues, come on in my kitchen, you know. I've, when you've got a good friend. I mean, these are the, those are Robert Johnson songs. Uh, Dust My Broom. I mean, it, it's, it, it becomes foolish to set up these bete noires, in a sense, or these, what do you call them, uh, red... Uh, Maybe they're red herrings, either somewhere between. Uh, and to say, oh, look, this collector collected Charlie Patton records, and that's the reason we listen to Charlie Patton today. No, it isn't. The reason we listen to Charlie Patton today is because his music persisted through the music of far better known blues singers who were not reading blues journals or you know critical journals or anything of the sort. The experience you relate about your first encounter with Helen Wolf at Club 47 in Cambridge would make any writer shake in their boots. How do you recall that today? Well, I, I, what I was writing, as soon as I got the opportunity to write about the music, I took, seized the opportunity because I was invited to by people who didn't know anything about it or, or care much about it, but who had to fill space. So <laughs> with the Boston Phoenix, it was largely an advertising journal, but they needed content. And a friend of mine was a drama critic and said, how would you like to write about music? And I said, great, but I want to write about, you know, Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, The Mighty Clouds of Joy, stuff like that. And that's what I said to the editor, and the editor said, fine. But what I wrote were previews of the performances. Uh, there was no point in writing a review of a performance that nobody was going to go to. Uh, you know, and I was trying to bring people. This, this was... My my evangelical. This is why I, maybe I can understand the evangelical <laughs> mission, <laughs> but this was my evangelical, and they were always about people I had seen. So, one of the first things I wrote was about the James Brown show, which I remember writing that this was the greatest theater you'll ever see. This was the age of um, uh, oh God, what what was it called? What John Arden did, and, uh, and not live-ins, not be-ins, but. Uh, Anyways, the kind of theater, it was participatory theater. And I said, you know, it doesn't matter what you've seen in theater. This is the greatest theater you'll ever see, is the James Brown show. And that's how I wrote about Howlin' Wolf, is having seen Wolf a number of times. He was coming to town, he was going to be playing at Club 47 for several nights, and I wanted to get people out to see him. I wanted to expose them to, to you know, to the music of Howlin' Wolf. So I described the kind of performance he gave, and, um, you know, as best I could. And then... Uh, I went, I must have gone, it wasn't backstage, it was, it was actually out by where they sold tickets, 
But um, whether I went to say hello to him or not, there was a kid there, and he says, um, oh, look, this guy wrote an article about you. And Wolf says, you know, oh, yeah? Well, yeah, I left my reading glasses back at the hotel. He Wolf actually had, you know, many of the people that I've written about uh, didn't, didn't know how to read or write. Wolf did. Wolf learned in the army and was, and Wolf was a consistent self-improver despite a kind of appearance of, you know, he was kind of had a, an appearance which could scare off people. I mean, he had sort of, it, there was a menace to it, but he was a very kind person and a very thoughtful person. But in any case, so he'd left his movie and he says, would you read it to me? And I'm saying, me? No, not me. <laughs> so this other kid reads it to him and it has things like his lumbering dance elephantine dance and writes about you know uh you know uh you know the wolf doesn't the wolf don't jive right right you know the wolf doesn't jive and and i'm just going through the floor i mean my life has been a series of uh embarrassments you know so <laughs> it's this was one of them and and then i'm quoting lyrics of his and he's saying, where you get that from, boy? You make that up out of your own head? And I'm thinking, no, it's your song. you know. And, and he wasn't saying, I don't know why he was saying it, but he wasn't saying it out of either lack of perception or anything else. Maybe he was putting me on. He'd listen to it and, you know, he seemed to like it. And I got through it and found my way back to my seat and hoped I, you know, never had to face anybody ever again. And he gets up on stage and he does every single thing that I had written about. <laughs> He's, you know, and, and the first set had been, every set was great, but the first set had been, by Wolf standards, kind of just perfunctory. Uh, only by Wolf standards. By anybody else's standards, it would have, it was standards that would have been considered superb. And then the, yeah, after this article... He's out there and he's rolling around on the floor and falling to his knees. And then at some point he says, you know, the wolf don't jive. His friends know that. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm his friend. I'm his friend. I would not. I would have given anything to. I mean, and I didn't consider him not my friend. But no, I was. You know, I never achieved that stature or status. But anyway, so that's that's what (laughs) that's what happened. And and I. But one of the reasons that I put it in the profile um, that's in Looking to Get Lost, and I've used it before, is the idea that I want the reader to understand who's telling the story. I don't want people to think that I'm the, you know, ultimate hipster or I'm the person who knows everything or you know, the author of this or that, you know, I'm some kind of, you know... I, I, I just felt like this really describes who's telling the story and the context in which you can understand the story. In some ways, it, it maybe it answers the Mary Beth Hamilton question, although I don't know if she would accept that. But, it you know, I'm trying to de-pretense the story and make the narrative voice and the and the person who you know who is in the story is unquestionably me but it's a persona it isn't all of me you know it isn't uh it's a using myself in as a way to give wolf to frame wolf and also to to in some way to recognize the limitations I mean, if I had come out of the blues world, if I were another blues singer and I were writing about Wolf, it would have come out completely differently. And I didn't want to pretend to be anything other than what I was, and I didn't want, and I wanted people to be able to see the portrait in terms that were realistic.
sweet that cherry wine I'm so glad she loved Loved me all the time She's my little baby Sweet as she can be All this love she got Do belongs to me If you hear me howling Calling on my Howlin' Wolves Howlin' for My Darling concludes part one of this interview with Peter Gorelnik. Join us on Jazzbeat 55 to hear Gorelnik discussing Johnny Cash, Dick Curlis, and Ray Charles.